Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thank you for listening. Today, our guest is Philip, CEO of Trustero, an AI co-pilot for security and compliance that's raised $8 million in funding. Philip, thanks for chatting with me today. Great. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Really excited about our conversation here. Take things off. Can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yes. I am the uh, founder and CEO of Trustero, and then my background is one of uh, technology-wise. So my basically trade is a software engineer and basically worked my way um, through the ranks and then became a starter founder. I founded uh, multiple companies. Trustero is my second one. Uh, prior to Trustero, I co-founded a company called SignalFX, which had a nice healthy exit, was sold to Splunk in 2019. And then prior to that, I spent a few years at Facebook. I was one of the early infrastructure engineers at Facebook. And then before that, I spent quite a bit of time at LoudCloud and Offsquare. For those the listener may know that the book, uh, Hard Things About Hard Things from Ben Horowitz was basically a big part of my life uh, from uh, 1999 through 2007. I worked with Ben for uh, uh, many years throughout my career, including the time at the SignalFX. So I started out as a hacker, you know, back in the Apple II and Commodore 64 days, and I've always enjoyed it, uh, being a software. And uh, I always comment to my colleagues that, you know, in the early days, certainly when I first started uh, in my career, that I can't believe like a company will pay us to do this. And that's how much fun I have with technology. And that's one of the reasons why I yeah, started another company in the technology space, uh, because I truly enjoy what I do. Yeah, we ask most guests that come on, we ask them about their favorite books. And I got so tired of hearing about the hard thing about hard things that I had to ban it and I'd say, okay, we we already know that's probably going to be top of the list. Let's go a little bit deeper. So you've had a unique experience there. It sounds like, you know, working with Ben Horowitz, being a chief architect at Opsware. Can you provide some insight into what it was really like working at that company during that time that so many founders have read about in the book? Yeah, I'll try to send them with a few things. I think one thing I found you know, going through many different startups, including Facebook, is that it's a lot of hard work in a startup. Everybody hears about, you know, at least for the winning startups, about all the glory that comes around with it. Everybody knows about the story of Zuck, you know, Steve Jobs, Ben Horowitz, uh, among those. But the great thing about the book is that it actually tells you the toil that it takes to build a successful startup. And I would say, you know, a lot of things I've learned about probably two of the biggest lessons is that innovation clearly is not enough. It takes grit to basically make your innovative idea to become reality and to become a winning business. Uh, yeah, I think that my time at LoudCloud Offsquare definitely like went through a lot of that. There were a lot of dance, a few ups, and obviously uh, it turned out well for everybody. But I mean, going through the dot-com bubble and having to see all your businesses disappear from you overnight was definitely very, very unsettling. At the time, I was the architect of Opsquare in LoudCloud. Uh, having to see all your work, the customers vaporize overnight, was definitely very, very disheartening. And having to live through that and then be able to sort of build up from that, it takes a lot of toil. And I think that a big part of every startup I've encountered have gone through some aspect of that. And what about Signal FX? Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey? I know you said it had a, a happy ending, it had a great outcome, but what was your experience like founding and then selling that company? 
Yeah. You know, Signal Effects started when I left Facebook and I, toward the end of Facebook, you know, I was thinking about, hey, what do I want to do now? Now that Facebook has gone public and then you know, it's become a huge company and that I have always gravitated towards smaller uh, companies. And then one of the things that struck me was that this is a time where AWS was starting to take off. And I thought a lot of the techniques that we used at uh, Facebook around how do you monitor distributed applications by using data and using data science was actually quite novel. And I thought that in all the companies who actually are building off this new modern technology on AWS at the time uh, would benefit from this. So that's the, uh, sort of the genesis of the uh, of signal effects. Uh, signal fuse at a time, but became signal effects. And I will say, like going through these startups, there are always these interesting you know, beginning. There's the euphoria in the beginning. At the time, it was pretty easy for us to raise money. You know, we actually raised eight million dollars on basically seven slides. But you know, after the euphoria wears off, then you start to you know, understand. Well, yeah, that might might have been my impression about what everybody would need in the AWS ecosystem or, you know, distributed system ecosystem, but uh, just in terms of observability is one of the things that we help point it was something that that is required. But, you know, at the time, it wasn't clear that was going to be the case. You know, it took us again, you know, after the initial release of the product, the response wasn't quite as what we hoped for. And that took us a little while to sort of build up a demand for the product. And then, you know, we went through many different sales teams to, to eventually get to a sort of a go-to-market motion that that worked for signal effects. Uh, you know, we started out as a sort of SMB motion, and then um, then we sort of pivoted to an enterprise motion. And then the enterprise were more sophisticated uh, people who actually adopted data science were the ones that turned out to be our best customers. It also happened to be aligned with a lot of the IP that we have put in the product. And that, that worked out well for us. And then obviously then eventually led to a successful acquisition of Splunk. I have to say that one of the the VCs, I believe it was Tiger Global, who invested in the last round of Signal Effects, basically doubled their money in 60 days. I always thought that was one of the best investments any VC could have made. Um, but I just a little bit of an anecdote in the side <laughs> to that story. <laughs> That's awesome. And I see in the media reports that it was the over a billion dollars that you sold for. That's obviously something that I think any founder listening in would dream of having happen, right? That's obviously a major life event. What did it feel like the day this deal closed? Take us back behind the scenes. What was going on inside your head when this deal was finally announced? You know, I think it was one of relief in the sense that with all the startups I've been at, it's always, uh, this is, it lives this continuous sense of urgency, like about, and always the fear that, you know, it's not going to succeed. And then uh, when the exit comes, then you get sort of the sense of relief. I think euphoria sort of starts out at the beginning of the cycle, and then relief comes at the end of the cycle. You know, the fact that you know, it was a great bit of money for everybody and everybody there made money. I'm happy for everyone there. But I think there was a sense of relief that I remembered the most. I'm sure it changed the lives of many people who were involved as part of Signal Effects, well, me included. But I think that the sense of relief of, hey, you know, we built something that's uh, successful. You know, we made money for a lot of people. And then we built a lasting product. Uh, now today, it's still one of the foundational pieces of Splunk in a box we acquired by Cisco. And I think that that was a, you know, the moment sort of reflect upon more than anything else. Post-exit, did you have any doubt that you would go and start a company again? Did part of you, did your family say, Philip, why don't you go take it easy? Why don't you go relax? Was there anything that you made you not want to go and do another startup? I think the minute Signal Effects exited, I kind of thought about what am I going to do next? 
And then this has been this lingering thing, sort of lead us a little, a little bit into Trastero, is that um, while at SignalFlex, obviously there are a lot of ideas that I had about how to expand the business. One of them was actually to deal with compliance. I know it's kind of odd in that, you know, what does infrastructure monitoring have to do with compliance? At the time that we went through the process of getting SignalFlex to be compliant with SOC 2, a lot of that process was very analogous to monitoring. Instead of monitoring just the physical you know, virtual infrastructure of, a, of an application, um, you also have to monitor the ongoing business processes. And I kind of thought, well, what a great platform to take a data analytics, a monitoring system, expand that into uh, compliance. I always thought that that will be one of the next things that we do as SignalFlex. Um, obviously, we never get around to it. Uh, and then Sotrastero sort of became sort of the follow-on of uh, what I would have extended as, and one of the SignalFlex to do. You tell us about traction and growth and adoption that you're seeing right now with Trustero. It's been a journey for us. I think one of the things we did earlier this year uh, is we invested generally in a go-to-market uh, motion. And actually, and that sort of coincided with our launch of our AI capabilities. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why we started out Trustero was we dealt with data science at SignalFlex, and I kind of thought the next motion uh, is really more around using large language models and machine learning to solve problems rather than statistical models. You know, so that's one of the foundations that we had when we started Trustero. And then all along, we've been building technology. And then this year, uh, we finally reached a point where sort of the confluence of uh, large language models being released uh, and all the noise that's going around with it. And we actually reached a point where our technology and the use of uh, LLMs uh, basically help us solve and sort of replace not only like tasks, but like almost complete roles of what a compliance professional will have to do. And I think that that sort of led to a very, very rapid sort of a growth for us. And so ever since then, I think this, I will say this is more of Q2 um, this year, that we've seen sort of probably 50 to 70 times MQL growth since then. So it's been a pretty amazing growth, mostly because that, you know, what we built foundationally have been very different from what we see in the rest of the industry. And now that you know, the feature is actually pretty concrete, it, it's very much that we could just show you exactly how we do things by uh, using AI and uh, it is uh, completely differentiated from anything that anybody has seen before. Something I want to ask about that you just mentioned there is this replaces or eliminates you know, current compliance roles. What do you see the compliance role looking like in the future? Is that still going to exist and they're just going to have to dramatically upskill and, and learn how to use AI or what? happens to all of these compliance professionals and the whole compliance market that exists today? I think with most technology, AI included, is not a flat out direct replacement. It's more of a reduction in the amount of labor that's required. And then and, and until the point where you could trust the system so much, it was so intelligent that you could forego the functionality altogether. I think we have a ways to go before we get to that point. But I think the step one and step two are basically, well, reduce data gathering. I think that's sort of step one that's already been taken with many different companies in this space. And then step two, basically take away uh, specific roles. Like for example, a compliance professional today, like let's say that you're on the buyer side of this equation of, and where the buyer have to look at, hey, our company want to use Google uh, or G Suite. Uh, our company want to use Slack. One of the CISOs uh, or somebody in the securities team is actually have to vet to make sure that, well, how much do we trust Google? How much do we trust Slack? And 
part of that process involve you know, getting hold of your SOC 2 report or ISO 27001 report. These are standardized compliance framework reports. And then sifting through them to see, to understand how they operate internally. So one of the functions that the Trustero provides is the ability to basically well, sift this report automatically for you and tell you about the key points that what a normal compliance professional will look for. So then thereby reducing the amount of time that a compliance professional will have to sift through those reports. Right, so that's one example. Another example is that one of conducting an audit. So uh, many, especially mid-sized enterprise companies, they actually conduct internal audit periodically to make sure they could pass a real, let's say, SOC 2 audit list for simplicity's sake. And uh, they have to do this you know, on a regular basis you know, for a couple of reasons. One is to make sure that the various departments within the company are abiding by the security standard that the security team has set up for them. And then two, just to know where the gaps are. And then, so this is yet another functionality that we're actually using AI, specifically generative AI, to basically help solve this problem. So now we've basically taken away two functionalities that a compliance professional have to deal with and then reducing their times. And then a third thing that, or you know, as Trustero will soon launch, is you know, I actually heard from many different compliance teams that they spend at least 20% of their time, at least as a uh, buyer of other SaaS businesses or as a seller of SaaS businesses have to deal with SaaS business buyers in answering security questionnaires. You know, the, the part of the buying process here, any SaaS transactions, specifically a large enterprise SaaS transactions that you always start out with the security questionnaire as part of the initial vetting process. And then it's then followed on by addition by compliance framework reports on an ongoing basis. And the security questionnaire, you know, is somewhat different. So every company, every securities team who are buying a SaaS product asking different set of questions. There's some similarities in between, but they're very, very different. Uh, and again, if a compliance professional have answered these like 50 or 60 times, they all look somewhat the same in their minds because they understand how the process works, but the language and verbiage to answer these security questionnaires are always different. And then another feature that we're providing is, well, we're, we're able to automatically answer these questions for you. And then again, now that's again, 20% of compliance time well quantified. So if you start adding these things up, then the number of compliance professional a company have to hire, therefore it gets reduced. Uh, and then uh, what's left basically sort of a compliance architects or you know, security officers that's able to then deal and use systems like ours to deal with compliance. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. November last year was really a watershed moment with AI and chat GPT, it kind of crossed this threshold to the point I call it like the mom test that, you know, as soon as my mom starts talking to me and asking about emerging technology, that's where I feel like it's really reaching into the, the mainstream. So that happened with Bitcoin in, I don't know, 2015, and then it happened with AI in you know, November of last year. So what's it been like for you leading this business? How did that change for you? Did demand dramatically increase? post chat GPT release or was there no major difference? What's that change been like? Yeah, it's been dramatic for us. And certainly one of the reasons that 
our go-to-market message in Q2 this year became more AI-focused, even though that has been the foundational for us, is because you know, we're trying to leverage some of this widespread awareness around generative AI, right? And then we think this will definitely continue. I think that uh, this specifically, at least from what we're seeing, affects the mid-market to enterprise the most. Uh, a lot of compliance professionals are thinking about, hey, these three features I discussed earlier around reading SOC 3 reports, around conducting internal compliance scans, uh, and around basically dealing with security questionnaires are things that you can imagine the AI should be able to help you with. And then as we talk about these on a a sort of a drumbeat of, hey, these are things that uh, we're leasing one after the other. And then the fact that people are you know, accompanying with their, uh, like people like your grandmother, uh, who knows, uh, who's been hearing about uh, generative AI, that definitely piqued their interest. And I think that this is true for the industry in general. And then I think one of the things, or at least a lot of people out there are thinking about, wow, right, how does ChatGPT, you know, aside from being a very, very, very robust uh, completion tool, uh, how does it help me with day-to-day -day tasks? And then so we're sort of demonstrating that, sort of that this is the beginnings of the next step that generative AI is going to have an impact on the, uh, not just the compliance space, I think a lot of professional tasks as well. When it comes to your market category, is it compliance AI or how do you think about your market category? Yeah, we think of it as a compliance AI. Um, we sort of want to differentiate that uh, significantly uh, around sort of the traditional uh, GRC space, where if you think about traditional GRC space, that's one more of a workflow tool and then a data gathering tool, a knowledge base of sorts. We don't think of ourselves as that. We actually think about how we basically solve the end problem for you and not just provide a tool uh, or a repository for you to deal with the problem yourself. I think that's a, a key differentiation. And I think that I sort of go back to one of the reasons I, another reason why I started Tristera was because when I had to deal with compliance, it was not something that I wanted to do. Certainly, it was the last thing that I wanted to do uh, as part of building SignalFX. And having these AI-based technology to be able to then remove that functionality, remove the task that you do not want to do, basically um, uh, helps quite a bit. What are you doing to really own that category or what are you planning on doing to really own that category? If I look at just AI in general, it's you know obviously a very crowded space. There's a lot of noise there. There's a lot of startups that are really doing what you're doing is you're trying to capture that demand for AI. So what are you doing to really rise above all that noise and, and stand out and make sure that when it comes to compliance AI five years from now, trust errors who comes to mind? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Compliance AI in general itself, it's not just AI, it's basically building a specialist. So the way we think about this is that, you know, our thesis about how AI is going to evolve is that there will not be just one large language, one model to rule them all. Instead, there will be many different models. And compliance AI is one of these models. The way I like to sort of make analogy about this is that, well, think about the world of humans today. We have specialists. I'm a software engineer. You're a broadcaster. We have doctors. Uh, we have lawyers. Uh, each one of us have some aspect of specialized knowledge that we're good at, but not everyone is good at everything. There may be a few people who are exceptions. But we think that you know, the wor world AI will shape very closely right, to this model, where there will be models which are really good at compliance because the information that's being fed to this model have a lot of nuances that's just not generally available. Like I'll give you one example where there are many different ways to satisfy a particular requirement in a SOC 2, but there are generally within a compliance space, there are few markers that 
a compliance auditor will look for it. And then these markers are just not well known. They're sort of passed down and they're sort of hearsay. And then, but you have to capture them somehow. And then we believe that compliance AI would be one of those that capture that, that set of uh, knowledge. When it comes to funding, as I mentioned here, you've raised 8 million to date for Trustero, but you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars in the past for your previous startups. So what have you learned about fundraising just throughout your entire career? Do you have a fundraising philosophy or is there just anything you can share when it comes to fundraising that may be valuable to a young founder listening in? Yeah, I think, you know, it's fundraising is different strategy, uh, different sentiments, uh, points. And I think that right now, you know, two years ago in 2020, 2021, we were flush with money. And I think it was a wise practice to raise as much as you can. Uh, in retrospect, we're also during that time as well. And right now, obviously, it's very tough to raise money. And I think that it's wise to be frugal and then uh, to maintain as much of your business uh, as you can and then be as frugal as you can. Uh, while still like uh, hitting the innovation milestones that you need to hit with your business. So it's one of understanding the timing of things, but ultimately I think the thing that's most important is that you need to be in control of the business to have a chance. And raise a lot uh, sometimes means that you have to spend a lot. So I think the best thing, you know, there's no, no general algorithm for anything. The best thing is that to be frugal and then to be conscious of where you spend your money at all junctures. I think that's really the best way I could put this. You know, I, there are times at SignalFlex, we would have taken as much money as possible and then grow as fast as possible. And that might have been a right sentiment and strategy at the time. And then there are other times where we wish we hadn't spent so much on go-to-market and then um, wish we would have been more frugal. So then uh, basically reduce the amount of money that we have to raise. Final question for you here before we wrap up. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? It's very clear to me that we now live in a world where all the businesses are somewhat interconnected. And we all want to understand and be able to trust from a securities perspective um, how other businesses operate. And in time, I think what will happen is that this notion of having to be compliant with a particular standard, a specific standard, will probably give way to transparency. And then transparency that's vetted by automation and so that, hey, just because the way your operations will automatically translate and then be understood by a buyer, and then a buyer will basically then tell you where your gaps are rather than going through business standards. And then if you have this um, sort of automation in place, then you effectively build logically a trust graph of not only how you operate procedurally internal within your company, but the connection between companies, uh, what company uses what tools, and therefore, what risks they may pose uh, to a buyer of that company, of the product. So I think that that's sort of where we're heading in. And then that compliance is fully automated. Amazing. I love the vision. And I've really loved this conversation, Philip. It's been a lot of fun. Before we wrap up here, if there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Yeah, well, one, you could uh, find me at LinkedIn under LIU Philip with two L's. And also visit us at Trustero, www.trustero.com, T-R-U-S-T-E-R-O.com. Awesome. Philip, thank you so much for taking time to chat. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.